How are those lions and tigers doing after they got COVID at the Smithsonian National Zoo? And how are the people behind the scenes balancing animal and human welfare? Although closed to visitors for much of the pandemic, DC Zoo buzzed with activity. A baby panda was born, an elephant went under surgery, and zoo staff had to figure out how to keep each other and their animals safe as the coronavirus spread. Four weeks ago, despite precautions, nine of the big cats got COVID-19, nearly killing one of their elderly lions. The zoo reopened its doors in May, but recently, both the Boo at the Zoo and Zoo Lights events had to be canceled. Acting Zoo Director Dr. Brandy Smith joined us this week to give a progress report and to share the zoo's plans for the future. To start, we'd love to talk about the big cats that got COVID-19, to hear how they even got the virus, and learn more about how serious these cases really were. It was very serious. We know that COVID was a human transmission. We do not know the source of the virus that went to the cats. We started to notice it in one of our lions, some small signs and symptoms that he was a little off. We're always vigilant when it comes to our animal's health, and we are exceptionally vigilant now, especially if it could be any signs or symptoms that are also those that we would see with COVID. So we started watching him immediately, and then we started noticing other signs and symptoms coming up in all of our great cats, our lions and tigers. It became very serious. It was interesting because we had one tiger have no issues. And other cats had some sickness, and there were three cats, three of our lions, that were especially sick. And one of our lions, one of our elderly female lions, it was touch and go there for a while. We did everything to make sure that these cats would get through this. The most important thing was to make sure that they were eating and drinking to keep all their processes functioning, and also that they were taking their medicine. And one of my favorite stories is we weren't sure if they still had their sense of smell. Did it impact their sense of smell like it can in humans? Maybe they had lost their appetite because they just couldn't smell the food. And so we started with any stinky foods that we could find, including goat cheese, fish juice, and blood has a very pungent smell that the cats like as well. So we went out of our way to not just find things that were palatable and easy to eat, like the equivalent of great cat baby food, but also things that might be especially tempting for a large carnivore. So how are the cats now? And what role does vaccination play in keeping this from happening again? I mean, you mentioned one cat was on the doorstep of death. They are all doing well. I'm so happy to say due to the constant round the clock dedicated attention of our animal care team, our entire team, the zookeepers, the curators, our nutrition department, our veterinary department, our pathologists, due to all of their attention, the cats are doing really well right now. We believe that they are through this. And we are planning to vaccinate the highly susceptible species at the zoo. There is a company that provides a vaccine for animals. It's not a human vaccine. It operates in a slightly different way. And we are working with them so we can vaccinate our most susceptible animals, our lions, our tigers, our primates, our otters, our skunks. Wait, otters are susceptible? Well, we do know that it's different taxonomic groups, so primates, carnivores, and the animals you think of as the small stinky animals, mostly so weasels, minks, otters, skunks. Biologically, we knew they were at risk, but we've also seen, for example, with the mink farms, that these animals have proven to be exceptionally susceptible to the COVID virus. The vaccine will be limited, and we have prioritized the species for those that will be susceptible. 
I think the easiest thing for most people is thinking about our birds and reptiles can't get the COVID virus. And when we have our safety protocols, we treat them obviously very different than we treat all of our mammals. The safety protocols you referred to, there's a whole nother set for people, the visitors who come into the zoo, because the zoo is one of the few Smithsonian locations that's largely outdoors. So you can see its attraction to families and people who want to go out and do something, but not necessarily something indoors with a lot of other people. How do you reopen a huge facility like this with literally thousands of animals and people while keeping everybody safe? So it has been an amazing story, and I can't tell you how incredible our staff has been because we also were never able to close down. When COVID first came here and people were closing down and afraid of what was going to happen, we had to keep working, but we couldn't be socially distant all the time. When you're doing a medical procedure on an elephant, you're going to be, you know, shoulder to shoulder next to the veterinarian and the other keeper on your other side. And so we had to keep working and we understand zoonotic disease, any disease transmissible from humans to animals. There are a lot that we deal with and we protect ourselves and our animals from on, on a regular basis. We just said, this is another zoonotic disease. Let's use our best practices and our understanding to keep our staff safe, our animals safe, and our visitors safe. We followed the science. We've been working together closely throughout the entire pandemic. This instance with the lions and tigers is the first documented instance of transmission in a year and a half that we have seen at the zoo. And we have been here, you know, seven days a week ever since it started. Yeah, because you are essential workers, especially to the animals under your care. The zoo is a very popular attraction. You used to be able to just walk in, correct me if I'm wrong. That's one of the many beauties of the Smithsonian. Now there are not tickets, but timed passes. Can you explain those to me? When the pandemic started, we started providing timed passes for people to come into the zoo. And this is important because they're free. Anybody can still walk into the zoo for free and they can visit, but a timed pass allowed them to visit safely. So you couldn't crowd just because there weren't enough people. And we have found that to be great. It helps with uh, visitors coming into the park. And we also would pace people going into each of the individual buildings to make sure that there weren't too many people in the panda house. Everybody didn't, you know, we have a thousand people in the zoo. If everybody goes to the panda house at the same time, then we're still in trouble, right? So we made sure that we controlled not just the total people into the zoo, but also how they visited so that no one area could become too crowded. And you just mentioned the pandas, the beloved pandas. During the pandemic, the Smithsonian National Zoo actually saw the birth of a baby panda. Can you tell us more about that story and why the baby panda's name, Xiao Zhiji, translates to a little miracle? So we knew going into this year, given Mei Shang's age, it was highly unlikely that she would have a cub. And I'll say now that she is the oldest panda in North America to give birth. So we knew at the beginning of this breeding season that there was a less than 1% chance that she was going to have a cub. And then this was at the beginning of the pandemic. So this is also while we were closed down and everyone was home. And normally what we do is we have massive teams in the panda house where we do an ejaculation procedure on the male and an insemination procedure on the female. Then we do it twice. And we know that's the best way to ensure conception. But what we said is we wanted to give her a chance to have a cub. It was a small chance, but it was still there. The world needs more pandas. We know that. And so we put together just a super small team and we said to keep it small, we're going to use frozen semen because that way we didn't have to do the ejaculation first. And so we just went in, (laughs) inseminated quickly, and then got out of the house and let things go. 
And we thought given her age, given the procedure and how different it had been this year than it had been for other years, we didn't hold a lot of hope that she would have a cub, but pandas always surprise us. The reason we have pandas is because we learn something new from them almost every day. And we take that information and we use it to save a species. And so, of course, like she always does, she taught us something new. And we had Xiao Ji, who was an absolute, not just a miracle, but a joy for us and for everyone who watched him on the panda cam. Oh, the panda cam. I, <laughs> I previously got the chance to do a piece on Bebe. The pandas and animals in general, I think, grab a hold of the public consciousness, especially when... We are in a pandemic. We want to talk about something that makes us smile. You've worked with a wide array of animals, from rhinos to butterflies to pandas. Why do you think animals have this hold on public conversation? Why do we want to be talking about animals whether or not the world is going according to plan? So I think animals bring out the best in us. I think when people come to visit the zoo, these are these incredible shared family experiences. People come here not just to see animals, to learn about animals, to be outside, to be happy together. It's not bounded. It's not bounded by any of your political views or your walk of life. We are a free zoo where people can walk in and can enjoy the same experience. And I Everyone has these moments of joy and awe when they see these animals. And this is one of my favorite things. There's a whole science around awe when you experience it. If you come here and you see the cuteness of a panda or the majesty of an elephant, you are literally releasing chemicals in your body, right? Hormones that make you a happier, better person. So it actually is oxytocin. It's the hormone of childbirth. When you see these things, you're actually feeling it's a, it's a togetherness hormone. It's a happiness hormone. And you are feeling these things and you're having these moments of awe and inspiration and togetherness. I remember going to the zoo with my family. You know, some of my happiest childhood memories with my family are going to a zoo and seeing animals and being outside together and having fun and having a day together. And we do that day after day after day here for so many people. Yeah, I I was lucky enough to grow up in this area, so I was spoiled by the zoo and all of these free museums, but now I have the same feeling, and that really makes me smile. Yes. A lot of places, if you're going on an event, especially with your kids, you have to plan an outing and an event, and it's a day. You know, you have to factor the price into event. And I came here with my kids. We would just be, wake up. You want to go to the zoo? Yes. It's so easy to come here. You can come and spend the whole day. You know, you can just pop in and see, you know, your favorite frog if you want to. You can use it as you want to. So Boo at the Zoo and Zoo Lights were canceled this year. These are really popular events at the Smithsonian National Zoo. And I think these announcements, these cancellations, came as a surprise to many people. So can you tell us why this cancellation happened and why the zoo decided to cancel these popular events? We thought so much about this. To carry off these big events, it takes a lot of planning. And we were having the conversations about Boo at the Zoo and Zoo Lights over the summer. So just at the time that the Delta variant was starting to really ramp up is when we were talking about these events. And Safety is always number one, safety for our visitors, safety for our staff, safety for our animals. What we do know about these events is there are a lot of people in a short amount of time because they have to happen after the zoo is closed. Also, the majority of the participants are too young to be vaccinated. As we were planning these events, it was during the summer. 
we have a lot of responsibility when we put these events together. There are a lot of vendors, a lot of sponsors, a lot of people who are involved and they're making plans, making promises. And we just kept saying, we don't know at this point in time if we can do these events safely, especially given the knowledge that we had, the time it took to plan and the audience who we know would be showing up. So we really just decided to err on the side of caution and to say that for this year, we would not have with the zoo. So as you're saying, you know, we're still in the midst of the pandemic. As the acting director of the zoo, what are your hopes for the future and what can people look forward to when hoping to visit the Smithsonian National Zoo in the future? So one thing, obviously, we're looking for, like everyone else, just moving out of this pandemic posture and getting even more back to normal. So welcoming more people back to the zoo, starting to have more events, getting our researchers back out in the field to continue to conduct the science. We especially want people next year. We have two big events that are happening. One is the Giant Panda's 50th anniversary. We will be celebrating 50 years since the Giant Pandas first came to the National Zoo and all the incredible science that we've done. Also, all of the incredible moments that we've created together with Giant Pandas. And then we're also going to be opening our birdhouse So our birdhouse has been closed for five years, and we are going to be doing something exceptional. We are going to be highlighting the story of migratory bird species in the Americas. A lot of people don't know this, but in the past 50 years, over 3 billion birds have disappeared. And I know a lot of people have really begun to appreciate birds this past year, looking out their windows in their backyards as they work from home. So this will be a chance for us to highlight the story, tell it in an exciting way, and for people to really understand what is happening with these species and what they can do to help. So there was a time when I went to the zoo and I was kind of taken aback by the fact that I was seeing all these beautiful animals caged and trapped. Um, And it kind of gave me a little negative feeling when I was at the zoo. And then I did a little reading specifically about the Smithsonian National Zoo, and I saw that there's actually this kind of history of conservation kind of linked with showing people these animals. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I love that. And that's a great question. When people come to zoos, they come to zoos about animals and they want to make sure that they're well taken care of. And what I can assure people is that these animals receive incredible care. So we have professionals, people who have trained to do this all of their lives, who put their heart and soul into ensuring that these animals have great lives and great welfare. And I always think of people who have pets and how they know that their dogs or their cats are happy and what they're doing. We have professionals doing the same thing. And we know, right? We know when our animals are happy, we know what it takes to make them happy. But we also know that that's not enough. Zoos have to be conservation organizations. We see ourselves as the storefront for conservation. When people come in, they get excited, they get energized, and they can become a conservation force, but they're also supporting the work that we do. When they come here, they buy a t-shirt or a cheeseburger or something. That money that goes to support the zoo is really going to fund our incredible conservation and science programs. So with giant pandas, with amphibians, with turtles, with penguins, with great apes, all of the work that we do here is really just the first step in a bigger conservation program. On October 12th, Rosalie the cheetah gave birth to five cubs. All six cats are healthy and living at the National Zoo's Biology Institute in Fort Royal, Virginia. If you want to see all the cuteness, it can be streamed live on the zoo's 24-hour cheetah cam. And on Friday, the first vaccines were given to animals at the zoo. As Dr. Smith said, 
At-risk mammals were prioritized to get the shot, while birds and reptiles don't need immunization. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Laura Svitalniak. And me, Luke Garrett. Our cover art was created by cartoonist Audrey Garrett, and our music is courtesy of Lockspeed. Join us next Monday as the world recovers.